If 2021 was the year the world began to turn the tide against the pandemic, 2022 will be dominated by the need to adjust to new realities. On the one hand, there are things that have been reshaped by the crisis, such as the new world of work and the future of travel. On the other hand, deeper trends are reasserting themselves, such as the rise of China and the need to tackle climate change. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and this is The World Ahead. Over the coming weeks, this future-gazing podcast series will focus on the key themes that will shape the coming year, drawing on the predictions in The World Ahead 2022, our annual publication. It's become clear that one of the biggest long-term consequences of the pandemic is the way it's affected how many people work. Working from home has become far more widespread, and there's a general consensus that hybrid working, spending part of your working week in the office and part of it at home, will be the new normal in many industries. But as economies around the world reopen, some industries are having trouble finding enough workers. Wages are going up, and there's a general sense that workers have more bargaining power than they've had for many years. The Economist's senior economics writer, Callum Williams, explores what's going on. Workers around the world suffered extraordinary hardship during the lockdowns of 2020 and 2021. In the first year of the pandemic, global working hours declined by 9%. In some countries, unemployment shot up so quickly that social security computers broke. Some analysts worry that the pandemic will usher in a more difficult era in which these workers struggle to find jobs or see their work handed over to robots. But do we really need to be so pessimistic? As companies look for workers, confirmation that the number of job vacancies in the UK is the highest for 20 years. 4.3 million Americans quit their jobs in August alone. That's actually a Many record. employees are taking advantage of rising wages and hiring bonuses to get the best offers possible from businesses eager to rehire in a tight labour market. Already, labour markets across the rich world have outperformed expectations. Unemployment figures were better, not worse, than expected. And some economists are heralding 2022 as the year of the worker, as we return to previous levels of employment. If projections that we see now hold out, then we will return to the pre-pandemic unemployment rates in the US and in the UK in 2022. This is Anna Stansbury, an assistant professor at MIT Sloan in the Institute for Work and Employment Research. And her focus is on labour markets and the macroeconomy. That's an incredible achievement when you think about it, that so much of the economy was shut down and so many workers in the US were out of work and that we get back to the pre-pandemic unemployment rate, which was very low already in 2022, is remarkable. And so in that sense alone, it could be the year of the worker. So I think there have been really two dynamics at play. One of them is that the pandemic has illuminated how important many workers are in jobs that society didn't value enough and still doesn't value enough, I think. We saw that in the language about essential workers and frontline workers, but particularly at the beginning of the pandemic when everything was shutting down and we saw that workers in warehousing and transportation, workers in the food industry, um, frontline workers in retail, and of course workers in healthcare, um, were completely essential and had to keep going to work. 
Alongside that attention, it was realized that even at the moment when essential workers were at their most essential, to keep the food supply chain moving during a shutdown, during a pandemic, even then, workers had very little power to improve their working conditions, had very little power even to demand protections in the workplace from the pandemic that was spreading through the workplace. And so I think this confluence of the increased recognition of essentialness combined with the increased need for voice because of a pandemic really got people to sit back and take note of the lack of voice in the workplace. One reason workers are doing better is because politicians and central bankers have, since the pandemic, concentrated more on reducing unemployment. This marks a sharp contrast to the approach taken after the financial crisis of 2007 to 9, where the focus was on reducing inflation or cutting public debt. Jason Furman is an American economist and professor at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. We are running across the world a much more expansionary fiscal and monetary policy than we've ever run before. And with one hand, this is helping workers, creating jobs and giving them pay increases. With another hand, it's taking that money in the way in the form of higher prices. My own sense is that in many European countries, they're probably doing a bit too little. And in the United States, we're doing a bit too much. In Europe, you saw countries trying to keep people connected to their jobs. In the United States, we let people get disconnected from their jobs. We gave them a bridge through very generous unemployment insurance. And we're finding it's harder in the United States to put all the pieces um, back together. That's why there's still 7 million people missing from jobs. And so businesses are you know, doing longer hours, working people harder, trying anything they can, technological and otherwise, to make up for all these missing workers while they try to satisfy the ever-increasing demands of the American consumer. But could these changes finally usher in a rise of the robots, as many economists assume? It is certainly true that past pandemics have encouraged automation, in part because robots don't get sick and aren't inclined to resign. But so far, according to The Economist's analysis, there is little evidence of job-killing automation taking place. Jobs that are supposedly vulnerable to mechanisation are growing just as quickly as other sorts. And Anna Stansbury agrees. The pace of automation we've seen generally over the last 20 years, relative to the amount we've talked about automation in the public debate, I think there's quite a disparity there. I think the pace of automation has not been noticeably faster than it has been in the era before that. But I'm not sure yet that, that there's evidence we're going to see a massive acceleration. The thing that where I think the technology may play a bigger role in a massive acceleration is with remote work. Almost all companies employing workers that could work remotely made these big investments in workplace technologies at the beginning of the pandemic to enable that, you know, whether it's switching to Zoom or ensuring that employees have the access to internal systems and internal data from home. And I think that is actually what we're going to see having big ramifications over the next year and years. And for Jason Furman, the shift in mindset as a result of the new work from home culture is one that could change working dynamics. Well, there'll be undoubtedly a big shift to work from home. If that makes people more productive, then they can actually be paid more 
and work from home. Have your cake and eat it too. If it comes at the expense of productivity, you might see workers effectively taking a pay cut in exchange for a job that comes with less hassle, like commuting and the like. You'll see different sectors are different. Some sectors it'll actually help productivity. Some it'll hurt, but workers and firms will be willing to pay the cost for the extra satisfaction that it gives their employees. The upshot of all this is that workers have more bargaining power than they've had for years. Monthly resignations are near all-time highs in America. Employers offering low wages or poor conditions are struggling to fill positions. Unfilled vacancies stand at 30 million across the rich world. It's never been so high. Too much worker power can be inflationary. Employers need some bargaining power too. Yet for much of the past decade, businesses have had the upper hand. Perhaps 2022 could see the balance shift a little more towards the worker. That was Callum Williams, who's here with me now, along with Sasha Nauter, our Deputy Executive Editor. Hello to you both. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. Callum, you just referred to 2022 possibly being seen as the year of the worker, or at least a period that kind of gives a new sense of bargaining power to employees. Do you think that's going to last or is this more of a blip? This is the biggest question in economics right now, I would say, because it is definitely the case that there has been a shift in bargaining power where people are feeling much more confident about their ability to find uh, jobs. They are much less prepared to put up with poor pay and poor conditions. But you're also getting a number of people who just don't seem as interested in working at all as they did even months ago. So the question is whether it lasts. I think there's reason to think it won't be like this forever, but I think it, it probably could be different to how it was before. So I think it's a sort of, it will be same in some ways, but different in others. Now, turning to you, Sasha, we'll be talking about the impact of more remote working and what that means for fairness in the workplace in a moment. But how does remote working connect with this idea of greater bargaining power for workers? Because surely if I'm an employer, then I can hire people who are anywhere. And that gives me, the employer, more bargaining power, doesn't it? Yes, no, that's a fair point. I mean, I think we need to unpick this a little bit. We often talk about this great remote working experiment as if it's impacted all workers equally and it hasn't so yes if you're an employer who is looking for employees who can work from home all the time you have a much bigger pond to fish from and arguably that was already happening with some outsourcing well before the pandemic on the other hand if you're looking for highly skilled workers that you tend to still want them to come in a bit. And so suddenly your pond becomes a little bit smaller. On the other hand, if you are a high-skilled worker, you now have, because your commute basically can become longer because you're only going in one or two days a week, you suddenly have a larger pool of potential employers who you can work for. So certainly within that group, I think the bargaining power definitely still sits primarily with the, with the workers rather than with the employers. What's your take on that, Callum? It's a bit sort of wonkish, but this kind of idea of gravity effects in international trade is quite important here. So what this basically says is that for economic activity to take place, people, generally speaking, have to be reasonably geographically close to one another. And this was always true in the production of goods. And it might be even more true in the production of services, basically because you want people to be in the same time zone. Even if you talk to the very small number of companies that have gone fully remote or almost fully remote, they will say to you things like, yes, our hiring pool has expanded geographically, 
But we do insist that everybody is within a three hour window of everyone else because we need to be able to organize meetings and, and that kind of thing. And I would just add, you know, to reinforce what Sasha said, which is that, in fact, the number of companies that are going fully remote is tiny. Even companies that profess to be doing this, you know, you dig down in the press release and actually they still have a huge office and they're still expecting people to come in frequently. And as a result, it's simply not realistic for a company based in California to hire someone based in Sydney for the majority of, of cases, at least. And I would just add to that, if that, you know, early on in this great remote working experiment, you saw the two extremes. So you saw some companies saying you can work from Utah forever or wherever you want, and others saying we will never embrace remote working in the long term. It feels like increasingly anyone at the extremes is quietly moving to the middle anyway. So I think actually very few companies will go completely remote for the long term. Thank you, Callum and Sasha. In a moment, we'll turn to the question of hybrid working and fairness. But first, a quick reminder. If you want unlimited access to The Economist app and website, or a printed copy sent directly to your door every week, you need to subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. In a pre-pandemic world, I would be recording this podcast face-to-face with my guests in our studio at The Economist offices in London. However, I'm currently at home fighting off an attention-seeking cat. Thank you very much, Luca. Callum, where are you? I'm in San Francisco. And Sasha, where are you? I'm in Amsterdam. Right. So, like many people, we have adjusted to a new normal in which a lot or even all of our work is done remotely. Now, we should admit up front that here at The Economist, we're lucky that we do jobs that can be done at home or indeed from anywhere, which is only the case for about half of all workers in developed countries. But that's still a lot of people. And the expectation is that more people are going to be spending more days working remotely after the pandemic than did beforehand. And although this has many advantages, less time wasted on commuting, for example, and possibly higher productivity, this new style of working has risks as well. And in particular, it could exacerbate inequality and unfairness. Iris Bonnet is a behavioural economist, head of the Women and Public Policy Programme at the Harvard Kennedy School, and the author of What Works? Gender Equality. So what am I concerned about in terms of the inequities that hybrid might be creating? One is what I want to call performance reward bias. Sometimes we see, even before COVID, that people's performance doesn't translate into goodies to the same degree, depending on people's background, depending on people's demographic characteristics. And so the question before us really is whether this has gotten better or worse um, in a hybrid world. And so my fear is that presenteeism is still well and alive. So presenteeism means that we still tend to value FaceTime. We still tend to value the time that people spend in the office. And partly it is because we are not doing a good job valuing outcomes rather than inputs. And partly it is really a simple psychological um, error that creeps in, in that there's research suggesting that mere exposure to people tends to be translated into in our minds as, well, these people are really doing an amazing job. I see them all the time. They must be incredibly busy. So again, that's the input problem um, as compared to the output problem. 
I am particularly concerned about gender inequity at work in this virtual world because already we're seeing from surveys that women will be more likely to take employers up on the offer to work virtually or remotely um, as compared to men. And of course, if we still fall prey to presenteeism, where we value uh, people's presence in the office per se, independent of their outcomes, or more importantly, take it as an indicator of performance, then that might actually impact women negatively. Again, this is not a women's effect per se, but it is um, going to impact those who are more likely to work remotely uh, negatively than those who are in the office. Having said this, I am somewhat optimistic that we might move forward on equity because of this intentionality. I do not think we will unlearn the lessons that we have learned during the pandemic. Work just has been, workplace design has become much more intentional. You know, with the pandemic, for those of us who worked remotely and had our meetings on Zoom or Teams, we've actually learned to be much more intentional. We first had to schedule the meeting at a time that worked for Singapore and for San Francisco. And we had to think hard about who should be in the meeting, whether the meeting should even take place, right? Many people complain that we have too many meetings to start with. And then how we would run the meetings, including, you know, who would speak when, how we would call on people, would we have raised hands, etc. So those types of intentional approaches to redesigning the workplace make me optimistic. Sasha, you've been digging into the numbers, and it's fair to say that not all workers do want the same things, do they? So what have you found? No, absolutely. All workers seem to enjoy some working from home, but there is quite a significant difference, actually, between several groups. Perhaps unsurprisingly, people with children are more likely to want to spend more days a week at home than people without And there's also a a very clear gap between white and non-white. This is data for America, where white employees want to spend the least days working from home and black employees want to spend the most days working from home. It's a really interesting finding. And what seems to be the dynamic driving it is, as several workers of colour have pointed out, the office wasn't really working for them before the pandemic, and they are much less likely to face the sort of discrimination that they were facing in the office when they're working from home. So there's a sense that they will be judged much more just on their output without any biases or discrimination getting in the way. But wasn't this supposed to be a a great opportunity? There was a lot of optimism about this early on in the work from home experiment. This was a great opportunity to address workplace inequality, to rethink how things like promotions were done, to improve diversity and inclusion because you could hire from a broader pool, to create this Zoomocracy where all workers are equal in their little Zoom tiles. The Zoomocracy thing is a really interesting one. Again, the thinking was we'll all be the same size on a computer screen, whereas before this, we'd be sitting in a meeting room with some people in comfortable chairs and others perhaps, you know, crouching in the back and hierarchy will kick in far more than it did on Zoom. And that was a wonderful thought. In practice, if you look at some of the survey data, unfortunately, it looks like that hasn't really happened. We know that For example, some of the issues that women faced before the pandemic, i.e. being interrupted more in meetings or spoken over, have, if anything, increased, or at least for some women, have increased during the pandemic. So there's no clear sort of levelling of the playing field there, unfortunately. 
so what can companies do about all of this is there a, a simple answer it's just it sounds like you know, a very difficult problem there's not a simple answer but if i could only have one thing on my wish list it's to be clear and transparent about both the written and the unwritten rules so if you're going to say it really doesn't matter from where you work then you have to live up to that, right? Then as a company, you have a responsibility to make sure that the people who indeed never return to the office really do have the same opportunities as everybody else. But it also means if you fall into that group of employers who says it really doesn't matter, do whatever you want, it also means that you have to be quite clear on the unwritten rules because that's often what gets forgotten, that policy is one thing, but the unwritten rules is quite another thing. And particularly with things like giving out the best assignments, et cetera. Um, And that's much, much harder. So being transparent, again, I think most employers will, if they're very honest with themselves, will admit, actually, I would quite like to see my workers every now and then. They should challenge themselves on whether some of that is just old, lazy thinking. But once they've worked out what they actually will value, they need to communicate that really clearly to their employees, even if they don't make it a hard and fast rule, but just being clear on expectations will really help because right now an awful lot of employers are just making statements that will be popular with the hot labor market, i.e., you know, we're super flexible and do whatever you want and, you know, we're very 21st century, whereas in practice they are very likely to still reward that young white male who will be chained to his desk all week sitting next to his manager. Callum, I wanted to go back to the question of the bargaining power of workers because, to a large extent, we're seeing that companies have to say that they're going to be flexible about whether you can work at home or not in order to retain workers. So that does increase the bargaining power of workers, doesn't it? But it also potentially increases the risk of unfair treatment. Yes. So, I mean, the classic example here is the uber elite investment banks who, for months have been going very public and saying that people need to be back in the office five days a week. It's very important for culture. People are lazy at home and and that sort of thing. Certainly internally and then also externally, there has been a slow, imperceptible change and the rhetoric has been toned down. I think this is basically because people are realising that there is a very large chunk of their workforce that they will simply lose if they don't allow them to have that flexibility over where and and sort of when they do work. So I think actually this actually can be something that for a lot of workers means that they have much better conditions. The question, as you rightly say, is kind of how long does this last? In a sense, the question of where you work will become less and less a question that is bargained over in the same way that for most white collar work, people don't really bargain over what they wear in the office anymore. That's not kind of a spectrum on which kind of there is negotiation and fighting. It's just kind of people can sort of wear what they like as long as they are dressed appropriately. And I suspect that probably within a decade or so, people will view where to work in in much the same way. As long as you don't take the mickey and as long as you're still good and productive and available, then there won't really be a debate over you know how many days a week you need to be in the office. Great. The other industry that strikes me is it's been worth watching in 2021 and I'm sure it will be in 2022 is tech, where you have workers who are very confident that if they work for a big tech company, they can get employed elsewhere. 
And um, so we've seen this quite public fight between Apple and its employees about how many days a week they should have to go into its shiny new spaceship of a headquarters in Cupertino. And um, the company said um, three days a week in and two days a week out. And the employees pushed back and said, no, we would like to be at home more than that. And they can afford to because they're very well paid. And if you work at Apple, you can get a job elsewhere in the tech industry. And so I think that may be a sort of canary in the coal mine. And we may see other industries having similar arguments, but not in quite such a public way. Anyway, thank you very much, Sasha. And thank you, Callum. That was fascinating. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Bird. You've been listening to The World Ahead. You can read more about these stories and other themes and trends for the coming year in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2022, which is on newsstands now and available online at economist.com slash worldahead2022. This podcast was produced by Simon Jarvis and the executive producer was Sandra Schmorelli. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.